0: Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Howard Davis, director of the school, and my role this evening is merely to inaugurate this literary weekend and to welcome you all here, and then I'll hand over to Tom Chapman, who's chairing tonight's panel. This is the second literary weekend that we are hosting at the school. Our first one was last year, and came really out of a view that it would be a good thing for us to get back a little to some of the LSE's roots because the school was, of course, founded by the Fabians, including George Bernard Shaw. And uh, at that point, the notion of social science and literature engaged with society that should be regarded as one was a perfectly common thought. And therefore, we felt we would try and do our bit to sort of re establish that linkage, which perhaps. Uh, Had uh, fallen into disuse. And last year's event was deliberately experimental. Uh, We had a wide range of subjects, like we've got this time, looking at this interface between uh, literature and society and literature and the social sciences. And it was uh, so successful with large numbers of people coming throughout the weekend that we thought we'd do it again, and so here we are. Uh, Last year, the first panel, um, which actually I chaired on on that occasion, included David Hare um, and a couple of other people, uh, including Mosim Hamid, who wrote The Reluctant Fundamentalist. And it developed uh, into a debate about why more creative artists weren't interested in what was going on in the economy and particularly in finance. And I had observed been, uh, launching the panel, that when I was chair of the Booker Judges in 2007, I read 110 novels, not a single one of which was about um, working life or finance or the economy at all. And during that time, the world was gradually starting to collapse around our ears. And I made this point, which, you know, then generates a certain amount of debate. And uh, about three weeks later, David Hare got in touch and said he'd taken this thought back to the National and to Nick Heitner who had said alright then go and write a play about the financial crisis um, which he of course subsequently did which is the power of yes which is indeed still running and making quite a lot of money for the National Theatre at the <laughs> present time uh, in which I <clears throat> unfortunately am in fact a character um, <laughs> that's my own fault really uh, but that's a high bar to set for this panel this <laughs> evening because the parallel panel last year <clears throat> has resulted in a major theatrical event. Um, but I'm sure that they will be generating equally stimulating thoughts so perhaps we can expect at least enough uh, to be stimulated by tonight's discussion. But thank you all for coming. I hope that you'll enjoy this session and that you'll come to others uh, over the Weekend, and I'm now going to hand straight over to Tom Chapman who will introduce the discussion and the panel.
1: Thank you. Good evening and welcome. Um, I'd like to start off by apologising for not being Mark Lawson, (laughs) as you may have noticed. Um, I'm delighted to be here. I'm a a writer and editor and um, we're going to be talking about how would a robot read a novel a rather fantastic topic for an opening talk. It's uh, something I tweeted earlier this week and got the response from one person that a robot would probably use an iPad to read a novel. And uh, I think we're hopefully going to uh, rise a little above that this evening. I'd like to say we've got three fantastic speakers here. Um, we have from the right Dr. John Adams, who is a um, distinguished and a uh, disaffected former literary theorist who has been looking for a path towards objective readings of literal texts and uh, has thus far been frustrated that the robots may be coming to his rescue. And we have Dr. Katvia Abraham here, who is a social psychologist who is an expert on qualitative, qualitative uh, methodologies. And um, she is an expert on um, a piece of software called Alcest, which is our, our robot reader, and will be telling us about what happens when you run robots with that. On my left, we have um, our tame novelist, Dr. Robert Hudson, who uh, you will know is the author of the Kilburn Social Club, but who also has um, a doctorate in history um, and plenty of experience about being a human guinea pig and what exactly it's like to have a machine read you. And the format of this evening is that we have some slides first, um, and I'm going to introduce the members of the panel to talk you through some of the initial findings, and then we'll have something of a dialogue between ourselves to, to discuss that, and then the last half hour, I'll open it up to questions from the audience. So to start, I'd like to um, invite John to take the stage and, and really start to show us um, with some some well-known examples exactly what the robot does. Um,
2: I'm going to see if this is right up. Ah. Is that audible? <laughs> Dave, um, you won't be able to see them very well but uh, these the, are uh, the novels which we've had it read so far um, there's the first one I'm going to ask you to have a look at the text here I don't know if you can read that but, um, this, is, this is one of the novels we've, we've cut the title off so that you can try and figure out what it is, this first list Felix, father, villa, turk, mother, daughter safety, agatha, parasitic system, the second one philosophy, natural, science, knowledge concern, book, subject um Life her vengeance exists, rage will destroy shall be yeah. burdened forth. Just he guiltness murder, uh, will you? Of the, uh, is one of the titles. Here's the next one. Um, it looks very similar to the previous one. Um, Charles' son, incident-established young Hall school. Not much in that, but uh, column three should be a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's of the Basketball's. Um, here's another one. Um, this one's a much bigger one. You'll see here there's, there's eight different categories here, eight big themes of the, uh, our robots read. Um, this first one, table, sit, his room, chair, thrust, by street, house, Oliver Twist. Congratulations. the <laughs> um, mark being given out, you'd have an A. Um, it is. It is Oliver Twist. Um, we did consider cutting the names out of this, but it uh, were much harder without. There's the other half of, of Oliver Twist. Um, and here's the final one. I'll be going into this one in more depth in a little bit. So, I won't tell you what that is yet, but uh, well, I will, that's what we did. So, that's just the introduction. Obviously, uh, this is opaque and confusing, so um, uh, it's Pavita's turn to explain what it is you've just seen and why it As the um,
3: academic representative on the table, or the current LSE academic representative at the table. I felt it's only right that I have slides. So I had the great pleasure this evening of introducing you to Alcest, which has been our robot and this little thought experiment that we've all spent a little bit of the last three or four months going through. And um, let me tell you a little bit about what Alcest does. Alcest is a software package which we use at the Methodology Institute, and we train across the LSE. Which helps us look at social social science data. So as researchers largely we have these vast volumes of data which we want to reduce and Alcest is one of the packages which allows us to do this in a systematic form. The fundamentals behind the thinking of the robot is it looks for speech co-occurrences. So looking for words which occur together in proximity over a large volume of text. So two things to keep in mind. It's based on co-occurrences of words and it's based on repetition of those co-occurrences over a large volume of text. Alsace, at its heart, fundamentally does not understand any meaning. It uh, might be surprising that we used it as our robot to look at literature, but Alsace in itself has no inherent meaning structures. It does work with some dictionaries, but those dictionaries are not language dictionaries as the tra- in the traditional form that, that we know it. So, the fundamental thinking behind LSES was which was developed by, a, by somebody called Max Reinert, who was a mixed, mix of a linguist and a mathematician, was that speech co-occurrences are reflecting some form of thought co-occurrences. So, when we speak about things, the words which we use to speak close to that topic that we, uh, we are currently talking about are reflecting ways that we as social beings are thinking about it. So, very... Sort of psychoanalytical in its in its in its youth, but largely what we might call free association. So when we have a, a speech text which is coherent, thematically coherent, we then can look within it for different ways of speaking about the same about the same text. And so what Alcest does is that it substitutes sentence meaning by analysing co-occurrences of words. So it's, this is quite different than what we're going to see a little bit later. Normal. Um, reduction summarizing packages do is it, in that it doesn't um, simply look at frequencies. It's looking at thematic co-occurrences. And its core capability is exactly those word lists that we saw a minute ago. So it produces these empirically based classification of text units according to the pattern of these co-occurrences. So Alsace at its heart takes a large volume of text and within a very short period of time reduces it to between three and eight clusters. It tells you these are the three or four lists of words that occur, are occurring close to each other within a piece of text, and then you as a researcher have to make interpretations as to what what these actual streams of words mean, what these lists of text mean. Um, I just thought since... <laughs> since we're at the Social Science Institution. I'll give you an example, a short example of how it, what it looks like with social science data. So m- one of the research projects I'm currently interested in is um, working on a governance project in Tanzania. So I have five focus groups, which are around 80 pages of text, which we've reduced down to four or five thematic um, lists, which I'll show you in a second. But As I introduce you to Alcest, I want to show you the language which Alcest speaks to us, which. Looks something like this. So what we've got reduced is really the central section. This section is what we are using, but there are many, many other cues within the, the kind of data that we get out of our And it's perhaps that you give you a sense of the complexity of the software, which gives us cues as to what might those sentence lists actually come you know, consist of. Um, <coughs> each of these classes then can, can. And I'm going to show you a different, a different, um, different project. Will, but it'll come up with even more levels of analysis bit, bit below it but we don't have to worry too much about that just to show you the degree of complexity that that our robot is <laughs> is dealing with so Tanzania data five focus groups talking about governance governance issues came up with five clusters as we can see here these are the five clusters looking similar to we ha- to what we had for the for the novel so the word list. And when we come up with the anal- anal- analysis as social scientists, we come up with something like this. We have the sentence list, word list, which we then interpret with the help of all of the other um, cues that we had from the main pages, to come up with the four or five main themes contained within the, within the uh, volume of text, within the corpus of text. So for those of you who are struggling at the moment or enjoying the process of, of learning social and analytical techniques, this is um, the joy of, that you reach at the end. The end of a long struggle of coding. We have lots of data we come up with saying, in Kinandoli District in Tanzania, they're talking about governance in five ways. Education, media, AIDS, infrastructure, and environment. It's a very short conclusion. vast vast volume of data to something very simple. And then I think you're...
1: John was going to take the stage at this point to, to talk to us about um, some of the predecessors of Alcest which are um, some of the tools you may be familiar with using at home but some of the ways that computers have historically tried to deal with text and some of the problems that are, arise from that Thank
2: you, they set all this up for us and I, I won't sit in front of it now um, um, Yeah, auto-summary programs some of you are going to be vaguely familiar with um, Alcest is in a sense a, a sophisticated version of that um, one of the questions is why you'd want summaries in the first place. Um, they're popular with, with businessmen. You can buy um, business book summaries. There are a number of websites which offer these where rather than having to read the book, as there's there's this one explicitly says, <laughs> um, you, can, you can simply buy an, an, an audio tape uh, summary of the book uh, rather than having to trawl through and, and read the whole thing and, and conceptualize it yourself business books being the types of things that you might want summarized in this fashion. Um, surely you'd assume literature wouldn't be one of those things but uh, alas it is. Masterpieces um, of world literature is available to you from uh, Frank and McGill which gives you plot summaries, descriptions and the rest all of which will, uh, will packet themselves together so you can have a, a literary education uh, on, your, on your bookshelf. This of course is designed much more as a, um, <coughs> as, a as a reference work than a uh, than an alternative to doing the reading. Um in 1997, uh, Microsoft Word packaged an, or a summarize function, some of, you, some of you may have used that at, at one point, and the way that that works is, um, it works on, on straightforward frequencies. so um, it looks for uh, a word that appears more frequently in the text, and then it looks for sentences that includes that word, and then it ranks the sentences by importance as a function of how often that word occurs within the length of the sentence. Um, almost as soon as it was published, some wag came up with the auto-unsummarized function, um, which offers to do the opposite and obviously isn't possible for reasons of information and symmetry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if, if you were to put a novel through to make the type of reduction that we've done with these books to about 500 words, um, what would it look like? Um, given that not many people read the classics, I thought we'd do it with, with the Da Vinci Code. Um, so that's the Da Vinci Code in Microsoft Word's auto summarize function. Um You can't read it very well there, but I have a a close-up. What we've done with this one as well is remove the names, because it looks for uh, frequently occurring words, um, and because um, Ben Brown likes to mention the the character each time, um, what you get if you don't take the names out is this. (laughs) 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 Which is is sweet. It doesn't quite give you the story, but uh, it does accurately recreate the experience of reading the book. (laughs) Um, So... (laughs) If we take the names out, which is which is fair, um, you get this. And actually, it's, it's, it's quite a nice, impressionistic poem. Floor Shook, The Man, Man, Paris, Tonight, Teachers, Tonight's Interpol Thought. It, it reads like thought. <laughs> um, but um, again, this is not what Microsoft Word's uh, summary was designed for. Um, more recently, a similar thing has come up. Wordle, um, Wordle uses the character algorithm, which is done by the uh, end, created by Jonathan Feinberg. Uh, but you can go onto the Wordle website and uh, you can paste whatever text you like in and it will make a very attractive um, visual representation. Um, here is uh, the Da Vinci Code again with the names in. <laughs> so again, Langdon, Sophie. The size of the word there, its position is arbitrary, but the size of the word uh, is a function of, of how frequently it occurs in the text, how important it is, according to whatever, the, um, um, whatever algorithm he's using, which I think we can assume is something fairly similar to, to Word's algorithm. Um, again, strip the names out. You get this, which actually isn't that bad. That's a, uh, a, a an attractive-looking summary of, of of the Da Vinci Code. Um, we put the same through through Alcest, um, and unsurprisingly, it looks like this. Um, <laughs> the columns you get here are um, more or less what you'd expect. I won't go into these. I'm going to go through that with with Moby Dick in a minute. Um, but just to give you a sense of uh, this type of reading that Alcest produces, in contrast to the author summary programs available elsewhere, um, I thought we'd have a look at Moby Dick, partly because it's a little bit more literary than lots of people read it, but also because the reading it produced was was interesting for, for a number of reasons. Um, there again is a Alcest reading of, of Moby Dick, and this is the, uh, uh, the first year literary undergraduate lecture section of the, uh, of the talk. Um, this is the first chunk of words from, from this list here. Uh, the way it's grouped them into these themes and we talked before about the themes it splits it into um, one of the interesting things is, is how the program split those themes up um, so here the first section which occupies about 15-20% of, of the text sky, wind, sun, roll over, shoot, air silent, dark, yellow, blue cloud There's external descriptions uh, from the boat this is a section where Melville is describing um, things that happen off the deck of the boat um, second section which is linked ways which can be to explain to you later. Um, these are obviously marinal terms, but associated, there are still descriptions on the debt. So these are boat terms, and they're also terms very much associated with, with the action of whaling. Um, so these are the things that, that locate the there. Um, this is speech, reported speech, and, and of a particularly sort of marinal uh, bent. So the way this is broken up, T and I, unfortunately we haven't gone through and cleaned these up, which in theory could. But um, what that's done is... is the programs stripped all of the uh, talky sections out and pulled them into a separate theme, so the textual fabric in those sections is different from the textual fabric elsewhere. Um, this is a section, if anyone's familiar with the novel, which occurs towards the start, where uh, Ishmael finds himself in Nantucket before he boards uh, the peepod and goes to sea. Um, where he stays in the boarding house with Creede, and again, this part of the book, if reading it, wouldn't seem that different. Um, bear in mind, has no sense of the actual meaning of the words it's reading here has nonetheless pulled this this separate section of the book out as uh, as one of the like six themes that it's isolated. And these last two, which are linked together and occupy the largest chunk, 42% in all, um, are maybe the most interesting. I'll switch between them five and six. Number five is the process of whaling, so this is whaling as opposed to whales, which is number six number six is about cytology the natural history of whales, these are the long, long sections, if anyone's read, Moby Dick, where Melville will discourse on, on the history of the whale, and why the whale is a fierce animal, and the history of the life, and the rest of it, that's been grouped together separately from um, the sections which talk about um, whaling as a practice as a human endeavour, as a, an economy and the rest, um, and that's quite interesting pulled out. These two things, both of which ostensibly use the same vocabulary, um, but use it in very different ways. So the associations that Calvin makes when he's writing about whaling are different from the associations he makes when he's writing about whales as, a, uh, as an animal. Um, as to whether or not that provides us with a, a useful literary analysis is, um, is a separate issue. Um, and that's my bit on the, the literary criticism.
1: Thank you. And I'm going to invite uh, uh, say our, our novelist Robert, to tell us a little about the receiving end. We couldn't get to have a Melbourne and we had the next best thing. I
4: am the next best novelist. Uh, I'm not going to stand up. I uh, need to change it. Partly, up. yeah, I go, my assistant will change some slides. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, partly because I don't know how to change the slides, which is not because I'm technophobic. It's just because I don't. If, if basically you could bring up the... Oh, it's a really good book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was... I was basically quite excited when uh, I was asked to participate in this partly because any time anyone shows any interest in your work obviously that is quite uh, exciting (laughs) Uh, but uh, my one caveat that I felt personally is is that lots of novelists really focus heavily on reading about the process of writing novels and looking at uh, story theory and story structures and I'm not like that I'm not interested in uh, I, I, it might help me I suppose later in my career but it's not something that I've ever been particularly interested in however I didn't really see how the process as described would in any way throw daylight on such magic as there is in my novel uh, and so uh, I was extremely willing to do it. Uh, what my novel is about, uh, as orientation, it's about a medical student who inherits uh, an idealistic wish-fulfillment premiership football club that she doesn't want, uh, just at a point when uh, the football club is assailed by a variety of catastrophes, and it then uh, follows a set of quite a large cast of characters over ten years, uh, as they uh, endure various crises and conflicts and coming to terms with the fact that the world isn't always how we'd like the world to be and so as far as I'm, con- but as far as I'm concerned the important thing about the book, what the book's really about is a group of people aged 25 to 35 uh, living in London and their relationships that's the core of the book uh, the, in my opinion the best reviews said that that's what the book was about and they tended to be the most positive reviews in my opinion obviously it's very gracious to discuss this in public but it's part of why I'm here uh, the, the less good reviews tended to focus on the footballness which is not something I was not uh, expecting you kind of know that it, uh, the footballness will overpower a critical reaction uh, but it was something that I was very interested in seeing what Alcest I was very interested in seeing what Alcest would do uh, to uh, the book in that regard I expected when when we we met to discuss the results computer asked me what I thought uh, it was about and uh, I thought it would uh, be about uh, I've written down here I thought Alcest would say it would be about uh, I thought it was about relationships I thought Alcest would say it would be about football uh, business, politics and maybe Africa that's the sort of sections I thought it would break it down into uh, those seem to be obvious subject headings that groups of words could uh, be linked uh, about uh, and I sort of feared and assumed that uh, this, the relationships uh, side of the book or the human relationships side of the book would be subsumed in these other things which uh, were the context within which the relationships were happening uh, and then I was shown the results which are which. Uh, and really I th- I th- I am I was very impressed basically result four uh, is that is fifty percent of the book is about the human relationships involved. those are the main characters involved in the stories of human relationships in the Kilburn social club and that's really that was really quite a satisfying thing to discover. Uh, Section three uh, is about the business of the football club, which is again about, uh, which is about the, again about human relationships, fundamentally, and about the, the power struggles, such as they are. Uh, section, what's going to come out next? Is it going to be two or one? It should be two. Two. Uh, that's that's the football section. A mere
5: twelve percent
4: of uh, the Kilton Social Club. And then, one, and this was a surprise to me, I was not in any way expecting it, though I obviously should have done In the moment that I saw it, I went, oh, yeah, of course. It's the section which says that basically the book is quite a large amount about trees and roads and hills. <laughs> but you obviously have to you, have to, you sort of, it turns out that you have to describe stuff. Uh, and I have done that. Uh, well done. Uh, and one of the interesting things about these results uh, that these uh, which we're not seeing here in the sort of the deeper next level of the data is that it also shows some words which were not associated with particular blocks and among the interesting ones of those just which I I enjoyed in whatever childish way uh, were in section 2 in the football section the words her and she were specifically not involved uh, with, with that section um, in section one, uh, no, in section four, the relationships section, uh, and this o- overjoyed my romantic soul. Uh, mummy is not related to uh, relationships <laughs> at all. Uh, and the conclusion I took, if, uh, if this is a place to talk about, you know, conclusions, uh, was, was basically I was really impressed. I've also looked at all the, at the, other, at the other data you saw at the start and uh, in Moby Dick and Sherlock Holmes basically they seem Alcest seems to break books down pretty well It's not; it can't do it, it doesn't know what it's doing uh, all it's doing is uh, it, I mean it's doing a moronic task, it requires us to interpret it, however it does seem to me, and the sample size is very small but what it does seem to me is that we've got a tool doing something that is, on some level, on some human level, speaking as a novelist, it's producing, it's a dangerous word, accurate results. Uh, uh, it's a very dangerous word, but, but, but results which feel a- as if they are accurate. And if it is doing that, uh, it seems that there must be questions that you could ask of Alcest data you couldn't ask it about one single book I don't think Uh, but you could uh, accumulate an enormous amount if you put a load of books through Alcest it seems that there must be some questions you could uh, ask of that data and so that's that's really my picture
1: thank you very much so now I'm going to pass a few questions around the panel before opening up to the the floor and um, I want to start really by, by picking up on that last very interesting point from Robert that really we're at the beginning of something and we have the opportunity to to do what we've never really been able to do before which is if you like to ask a robot questions about ourselves um, and I wanted to, to turn to Gavita, our social psychologist and um, ask I suppose what do you think the questions we can usefully ask over this tool are if we're emerging to this new discipline of the social psychology of literature what, what should we be asking asking ourselves to tell us about books?
3: Well, when uh, John first approached us in the Methodology Institute with his literary criticism background and said, you know, we have, over many years in, in literary criticism, this discipline of trying to find patterns which support whether a book is good or whether a book is bad or support these judgments that we make on literature. So do you think we could run one of these sort of so- social scientific tools across our data and I remember that rea- at that time John having this reaction that that's a really rubbish idea <laughs> and, and sort of wondering why would you want to reduce literature and novels and art and all good things to this very sort of rigorous method of reducing it to things which are patterns which are consistent and exist across texts and volumes and so on and so forth and I think going through this process with the rest of the group, I, I have come to um, slightly slightly change my view in that following on from what Robbie said about well, it's not necessarily very insightful when it's one, but perhaps if we looked at all the literature of the 1920s or all the literature of one novelist it might as we increase the, the, what we social scientists call the end value from one to many as Alcest requires a large volume of text Perhaps it is going to give us some insights. Perhaps it might be able to say, um, to make some comment about it. What it cannot do is, it's not an evaluative text. Because anything you put into Alcest, you'll come up with clusters. If you put two um, you know, South Indian language texts into Alcest, you will get clusters. Because Alcest is not reading a language. So we have to be careful about making evaluations about the goodness of a text, of a, of a form of literature, of a genre of an author, or the weakness. But maybe if we, if we stay well clear of that, we might be able to, with larger volumes, have some contribution that we could make to this literary critical <coughs> criticism debate.
1: So we have a future in which we might be scaling this up and, and, and pumping in tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of books. Um, you mentioned the, the qualitative angle. And is it the impossibility of bringing qualitative judgments into this. And um, I wanted to bring John in here because I know you you're an expert in in the fact that people have been trying since well before there were such things as computers to to bring in objectivity into judgments. But historically, it seems like people have always done that in order to try and somehow reinforce or buttress quantitative judgments. It's very hard to get away from that. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the, the history. Of sort of human motivations behind trying to be objective about texts. Yeah,
2: this, um, this is why I approached the Methodology Institute in the first place. Um, I've looked at the, the history of literary criticism and, and going all the way back to the discipline's inception, which is later than many of you might think, in, in the 18, 1880s, 1890s, um, when it's first suggested that modern literature be studied at university. Um, there's not uproar, but there's certainly dissent in Oxford, um, where the complaint is. Um, literature is just not a, a teachable subject because it's not examinable um, uh, one of the complaints at the time is um, uh, uh, there are many things fit for a man's personal study this is um, uh, Professor E.A. Freeman many things fit for a man's personal study which are not fit for university examinations one of these is literature we cannot examine in tastes and sympathies and he goes on to say what is there in the study of literature to distinguish it from mere chatter about Shelley um, it's a phrase which Crops up again and again, even today, in um, in, in Romanticism journals, um, and that methodological anxiety was never really answered. Um, they never really did come up with a, with a way to teach it, but the course was was introduced anyway, uh, and gradually spread and became more successful. Um, in the 1920s, in Cambridge, either um, Richards, I. A. Richards, uh, as he's as he known by the publishing name, um, he introduced something called practical criticism, and anyone who did. Um, English at school, which as I imagine um, most of you probably will have been given a practical criticism to do at some point. Richards' idea was strip off the, um, the, the ancillary information around a text, the text, the title of the poem, the, the, the period in which it was written, the author's name especially, hand out this text, get his students to evaluate it, write about it, talk about what associations and feelings they have. <coughs> and Richards is looking with doing this to try and find some kind of pattern in these poems that he hands out um, it doesn't work I mean it works in as much as it produces reams and reams of, of essays um, Richards writes to a friend at the time that um, his students taste are strange beyond report thought or belief uh, with all the candidates for my prize with only one exception preferring the poor writers to the good ones um, so Richards has gone in with this sense of, of what the students should like and they failed to back him on this. So, this, this first kind of empirical foray doesn't succeed very well. Um, later on, there's, there's repeated other attempts. There's Motrock Fry in the 1950s, who tries to produce this, um, this kind of archetypal system, which is a kind of taxonomy, a macroscopic biology of, of criticism, if you like, where you can break the different books down into, into species and subspecies and larger categories. Um, there's Roman Jakobson, a Czech linguist, um, who really takes the opposite approach and really tunnels into the texts, um, he's effectively uh, taking up a sort of microscopic view of the language, believing that there must be something in the language that makes these texts better or worse than one another, and he thinks he's going to find the, the quintessence of literary value, which he calls literariness, um, and sure enough he does, he discovers this, this pattern which is present in Baudelaire and present in Shakespeare, and it's, it's a series of oppositions and chronological patterns, um, and he thinks this is wonderful, until that same pattern of literaryness begins to occur elsewhere. Uh, he finds it, for example, in an off-the-cuff comment by Ivan Tuzsino. Um, he finds it again in an advertising slogan. Um, it crops up in uh, newspaper magazines. Um, eventually, Jonathan Pell is able to take a section of Roman Jakobson's own writing and find exactly the same pattern in there. Um, so his literariness, whatever it is, isn't a mark of literature, but it's some kind of background hum which is present in, in all texts uh, equally. Um, in the 1970s, the, the, the structuralists have another batch, kind of on the back of, of the Akerson's work. Um, that system doesn't work too well. The 80s and the 90s see kind of move away from trying to make rigorous, um, impartial readings of texts. Um, and then just recently, um, that, that, that interest seems to have been spurred again, partly by people like Franco Moretti, who I'll we'll talk about in a minute, um, and partly by the evolutionary psychologists who also think that they maybe have a way of. analysis of, of literary
1: texts, using evolutionary psychology as a framework for that. So we have a, a century of, a, of trying to isolate and bring down the ghost in the machine, um, as it were, what makes literary quality, and fortunately we also have here in, um, in Robert novelist mm-hmm. who's a historian, um, and before getting into the possibly endless question of literary merit and quality, I really wanted to ask what turning novels into this kind of data means in historical sense what it offers to someone who is, who is looking at things looking at things from a historian's point of view
4: well I suppose historians are always hungry for data so my background is, is, is as a historian and I think that there's very little uh, data that historians won't use uh, but some data is very unwieldy uh, and so uh, demographic data uh, can be is, is an absolute nightmare to use but it produces excellent results when you could, when you, especially when you plug it through a computer and you start to see patterns if you, for instance, were putting all the novels as Kavita said, of the 1910s and then the 1920s and the 1930s through Alcest it's perfectly possible to imagine that uh, different... That, Uh, you would start to see uh, different concerns uh, arising in different periods that seems like a perfectly plausible hypothesis it's a fishing expedition uh, and I suppose you wouldn't go in specifically expecting that you would just run the data the results that come out are so condensed that uh, I suppose the results themselves would start to uh, suggest questions and places to look for more information. But that seems to me, as a historian, the most viable use of this. And I think it would be a very viable use. I think uh, there's definitely something to be done there, or a wide variety of things that can be done. There.
1: So we've got a, as a, as a particularly rich historical resource. I've got a turn of questions out soon, but I wanted to pick up on one more idea about how this might be used, uh, which we're talking about briefly before. I was partly inspired by the, the idea of what's called advanced chess, which you may have heard of which is that, as one knows, machines are now very, very good at playing chess. But interestingly, Garry Kasparov, among others, has developed the idea of of humans and machines playing chess in tandem, helping each other out. He calls it advanced chess, the idea being that the human mind hooked up to the machine intelligence and analysis is far, far better than either the unaided human or the unaided machine. And um, with this kind of tool that we're talking about, I do wonder whether we're beginning to see a kind of advanced writing, people are plugged into data tools, analytic tools, that they are no longer just writing unaided, and I wanted to, well to ask this to the panel, but first of all to, to, to John, for your, for your thoughts on what might lie ahead for, for writing in this sort of mediated society. You
2: know, I don't know if I, can, if I can answer that very well in terms of, um, in terms of creative writing, but um, in terms of criticism which is the side I I come at it from as opposed to Robbie um, uh, you'd have thought that these would have been very very useful tools and and would provide uh, a useful structure and an aid to literary critics looking to fan their arguments on something more than their own personal readings Um, traditionally that hasn't been the case Um, generally literary critics don't avail themselves of um, too much historical data there is a, a trend away from that Historically, it's been much more focused on the text itself um, without using the types of uh, backup material that this could provide. And to some extent, I think there's, there's good reasons for that from the critic's point of view, um, which is that they want warrant to, to make uh, claims about the text that the author, for example, couldn't contradict. Um, there's been a movement in criticism very much influenced by Freudian um, psychoanalysis, where um, if the patient says to the analyst I, I don't think it's anything to do with my mother um, the, the analyst will say well you're in denial you're, you're not, you're not in, in, you don't have full access to your own thoughts and a similar thing happened with, with literary criticism when uh, the relationship between authorial intention what the author wanted to put in the text um, was, was cut away from the idea of what the text actually ended up saying so the critic wants these will almost be an impediment uh, an impartial reading would be in heaven because it would seem to stand as as um, a sort of empirical block in the way of making free ranging interpretations.
1: Um. I would turn to our, our novelist, I don't know if you want to uh, re- reflect on that as I, we were ch- chatting before and uh, the writing process for you, and I think for a lot of authors, is, is very much not a sort of advanced text um, perspective in that it's very much between you and the cryptic process in front of
4: you it was for this this book which was very much uh, I wrote it for reasons of time and practicality Uh, I conceived of it uh, and planned it and wrote it as something that didn't require research Uh, it's uh, a a fantasy to to a large degree based on quite a lot of things that I do know Uh, the next book I'm writing does require quite a lot of research and so it's a much less unmediated process. And it, and it is introducing me to the ways in which it's, I'm writing it in a way that I couldn't possibly have written it even five years ago. I've got a, a brilliant writing program called Scrivener, which I heartily recommend to anyone, uh, which allows you to move bits of text around and place your research in, and place and organize your research and access it in a very easy and intuitive way that allows you basically, to put the thing together much faster and more neatly than you would without it. I still require time alone with a notebook in order to plan certain things, but that is... uh, I I am a different writer as a result of uh, interacting with a computer. The specific thing I take from Alicest, I don't... It's a sample size, as we've talked about, it's a sample size of one. However, since it accurately reflected what I hoped the book was about... Uh, I do not think I would over-listen to answers but I would be interested to put the next book I write through it and if it came back saying something radically different about the book than I thought given how accurate it is in these other cases I do not think it would change what I wrote necessarily but it would give me a pause for thought if I thought look this book is uh, this book is again 50% about relationships I and mean, it Wrote back saying no, this book is 75% about tuna. Know. Uh, then I, I would, uh, which is certainly something that I fear it might say. Uh, then, uh, then I would, I would, uh, um, what I would do is I would ask other humans uh, because again, it can't evaluate it, but it would, it would make me ask other humans. I think.
1: Afonso I Cavido, i was going to turn to you as, as our resident social psychologist. Um, to ask about how you look at the study of, you know, it's the 21st century, it's the digital age, and literature being studied in, in universities in many ways according to the sort of rules of thumb and principles that have been around for, for thousands of years of discussing texts. But I mean, do you do you look at that and think that this is something which has got to or which is going to change? That this is that these kind of tools mm. are a pressure that is going to build up in this field and become very hard to ignore.
3: I suppose that on our panel here, I'm the least literary person and the most social science person. And um, for me, literature is, one, is something I, lo- I love to dip into, and I have great envy of novelists. And I uh, think it's one of the happy places in my life. And I don't—I want to be as resistant as possible to put social science rigor into that world. I resist that very strongly because we are looking for the removal of biases. As social science researchers, we're trying to remove bias, we're looking for systematicity, we're looking for transparency. Our, um, I mean our LSE logo is to know the causes of things without all of this human error and nuance and you know, subjectivity and all of these things. And, 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 and I, you know, for my sense, I'm also a qualitative researcher, so it's something which is very real in my research. So, I have learned very much over the process of um, doing this experiment that apparently novelists don't go and sit in a lovely part of Cornwall and look at the trees and write nice things and, and you know, share their human experience with us. And in fact, there are people, as I think you were mentioning earlier, who, who Google Map and Google World, and I don't know so much of software which puts stuff and then places it in different ways. And the, there are whole industries churning out the same pattern books. Uh, whether it's Paolo Coelho or with whole industries where the, edit, the novelist comes up in the end and just sort of edits sort of, so the fundamental pattern of the book is exactly the same and these are very, very famous successful writers who do this. So I'm, I know it's happening but I'm trying very hard to keep <laughs> access to with, with us inside, inside the LSEO, inside social science research and, and, and pray for the bias because it's that part of human experience and the nuance and the subtlety which I, w- I
1: go to Literature 4 So the, the most romantic person in our panel is, is the social psychologist <laughs> When it comes to
3: Literature
1: It, sound, it sounds like in, in some ways rather than asking how would a robot read a novel we have the problem of what happens when a robot writes a novel and there are some <laughs> novelists out there that may be answering that for us already <laughs> uh, well, We have about half an hour left and I think we have some loading microphones so I'd like to, to throw this open to, to the audience to ask questions to the panel and what I'm going to ask is that you say, say who you are and um, I'll take a couple of questions for people and then put them to the panel so we can get through as many as possible. Um gentleman at the front here. Um microphones are a long way away. Thank you. Um, who wrote the Alcest code and how is it licensed? I think um, I can I can preempt that one slightly by saying that well, it's it's all very secretive and we don't know a lot about it because it's proprietary. But um, and um, the lady uh, there in black
3: um, I was curious as to how ALSES is actually different. Can, can you say who you are? Oh, um, my name's um, Jella Richards. Um, I was curious as to the, um, what you showed at the beginning about ALSES and how that's different, you being a social uh, psychologist, how that would be different from a person manually doing something like content analysis or something like that.
1: We have two questions to But the first one, I um, say I don't know how much we know about this. I might ask Evita as to what's behind the code, um, and the, the second one as to the ways in which what it's doing differs from what a diligent worker would do. Do you want to take those questions?
3: Sure. Um, I, I would go with Tom in that um, we know most of our sets, and most of our understanding of how it works is, about, is from our experience of having used the software and a variety of data. We don't know the the, the algorithm. We are not uh, able to access the algorithm because it is proprietary software. But we do know that it works in terms of what we're trying to do, summarizing large large volumes of data. So I apologize if that's not necessarily a satisfactory answer to how our robot sees the world. But (laughs) but it it comes from France. It it, it is from um, the... the founding institute is an Institute called image and there is a, a, a linguist mathematician called Max Weinert, who was the first pers- I think the academic and the thinker behind the look, the algorithm which assets works on I know it's gone through many iterations the actual algorithm since its first inception but that's where we go to learn more more and more about it
1: And where's it where's different from our, our hypothetical diligent manual manual work and what's what's it's, going on
3: well we uh, traditionally code data, so when we deal with qualitative data, large volume of data, we try to summarize it, giving it a little themes until it finally comes up with four or five overall themes of what the text does. Now the, tradi- the, the criticism which we faced over many, many years is that this, the subjectivity and the bias in the coding system. The nice thing of what LCS does is it removes the researcher from that process. It gives you the themes. And then, of course, what it doesn't give you is the fine-grained detail of the nuances of the languages behind those themes or the text behind, say, for example, the education theme. How do how are people talking about it? How are people thinking about it? It doesn't give you that. What it gives you is your high-level thematic coding frame. And then, if you want, you can drill down within that, going back to the traditional manual, manual coding, that you can separate the text which lies behind any one or told and say, how does this break up? But it, it almost inverses that pro- process and allows the researcher to step away from that, again, removing that bias issue, the subjectivity issue, which we're always teaching. Isn't one about. of the
4: other differences, and I mean, this seems incredibly prosaic, but isn't one of the very real differences that it's unbelievably faster? And the result <laughs> of that is that you can, and that, which, which is sort of funny, but the other side, it just allows you to look at data... In a volume that you could not practically do uh, without. Mm.
1: So we've got, we've got speed, speed, and automation there uh, Can we take a few more questions? Yeah. Um, the lady in the grey from. That's the microphone. And then if, we, if you say here on, we'll take the gentleman yeah. next to afterwards.
3: Um, Nadia Kerichuk, I'm a historian of ideas in language sciences and my question is basically on the principles or the conceptual framework that is used or adopted to create these codes because it's, as far as I can see uh, what is being used is co-occurrence and uh, that is, it seems to me a kind of a Chomskyan offshoot and um, the problem with that is that y- you're making assumptions about language, about natural language which are not true as a matter of fact for example you cannot account for reference and when I say reference, for example, any word that is contained in a novel, like Robert's novel or whichever novel, refers to a universe of knowledge. And there are also other references, like a hypertext of that. And it seems to me that it's a very little bit that is It is as if in the Indian tale, you know, is the ant looking at a big elephant but seeing just that tiny minute bit. Okay, that's my question.
6: Thank you. Hi, Thank alumnus. Um, My question is about, actually, about the interpretation of the data. Because, I mean, I think it it looks quite obvious from this that it doesn't actually give you any meaningful result. It just, you know, this this robot just categorizes things into different boxes, you know, in different sections. But actually, it's up to the human analyst to actually give a meaning to that category, isn't it? From what I understand. For example, you know, when... Robert says, oh, you know, the fourth category is 50% relationship. Well, it doesn't actually say relationship there. It just gives you some certain names. So perhaps, you know, the interpreter here is like approaching the, you know, the data or the analysis uh, with some sort of preconceptions and giving it, you know, his own interpretation. And, for example, in the first category of your novel, you know, it was giving all those things like color and descriptions and trees. And, you know, you said, oh, you know, it's the description of maybe the outside world, you know. However, maybe it could be some sort of like the natural habitat of an insect. You know, if I had no idea about this novel, and if you had no idea about this novel, you know, it could be anything. And actually, similarly with the Tanzanian project, I mean, it doesn't, for example, say that one of the categories is education or the health infrastructure and so so on and so forth. I mean, we already have some sort of preconceptions, but I mean, how do we actually pinpoint and say, you know, this is the main category? Presumably, you would need to go back to the text, to actually figure okay. out that it really is the one, Thank you me. know, the accurate one. So I mean how do you come out
1: of that problem? Okay, I um, I was going to um because of uh second. I was des- desperate to come uh, around desperate, desperate answer. Uh, I,
4: I think it was actually one of the first things that can be said is that it's alsace als doesn't produce meaning. You're absolutely right. There's no there's no there's no pretense that this is something that works independently of of the human. This is a tool that a human is using. Imagine it, it's not the same tool as a dictionary. It's not the same tool as a biography of a novelist. It's just a tool that you use to provide you with extra information, and it's a tool that you, that I, that both as a novelist and a historian, I would say that you have to evaluate in the context of his use. Uh, so it's 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 a it's a conversation between this group of this this data and me as an interpreter. Uh, no one is pretending that you can remove the human element from this, or that the uh, evidence is providing any meaning uh, in and an of itself. That's that, that's that's sort of a straw man. The, uh, this is about uh, this is about an extra piece of information that we can maybe mine for uh, meaning as a meaning-seeking uh, author.
1: So we have the fact that we've been given. An additional tool that just helped us in our key to come to deal with texts and then John I was going to ask you on, on the first question and oh. uh, talk about that briefly um, the fact that there are assumptions about natural language it's a Chomskyite notion encoded um, in this method of analysis and that might be um, misleading a bit lax, lax uh, and that it lacks reference and that it sort of undermines the project uh, you respond to that again
2: okay, I suppose <coughs> it's an answer that also follows on from what what Robbie had just said and that is that um, one thing we're certainly not doing here is advocating this as a substitute for literary critical readings nor indeed putting this forward as um, a particularly useful thing for the uh, social sciences to do with respect to literature. Um, what we are saying is this is the type of thing that happens in social science departments and if you were looking to produce a more rigorous type of reading, the type of rigor that, that's exhibited by the social sciences um uh, generally, then this is the type of results you get. If they're dissatisfying, then mm, that answers the question of whether or not we'd like to see a more rigorous literary criticism. As for the comment you made specifically about um, this being a, a you know, taking a Chomskyan view of language that, that wasn't true or rather didn't reflect the way language worked, um, be that as it may, the, uh, the results it produces strike me as persuasive. Um, not being having any investment in this particular piece of software um, I'm impressed by the fact that it, it splits off Moby Dick into the sections it did um, it does that because as I said the textual fabric is different in different places um, what we're calling meaning here is really just those associations so if there's a quibble there it's more with our use of the word meaning but if we mean by that words which most readers would agree would be sensibly grouped together um, then it's produced that so on a pragmatic level it's, it's yielded a reading which is satisfying um, whether or not that disagrees theoretically um, with, a, with an account against Chomsky is um, I suppose neither him nor there.
1: thank you so we have a, <coughs> a radical, radical pragmatic defence of the <laughs> results of the programme and um, Kavita do you have something to ha- add on these, these related questions as well
3: Sure. I I mean, I do from the perspective of what we're doing in social science. In social science, we're trying to sort of look at the real world, and we have different methods that we can use to reduce the real world, to reduce the images of what we see out there into something that is manageable. And into this process, whether it's quantitative methods or qualitative methods, is infused many, many, many subjective judgments, from the way you articulate a question in a questionnaire to trying to analyze an image. And in that process, you're absolutely right, we lose a whole lot of information. Given what we do have as tools though, this is a methodology which does something quite different in that it creates a degree of transparency for the production of thematic codes which we didn't necessarily have before when we were manually coding. It says, here are some codes based on an algorithm which are produced by by software, so it removes one level of bias, And then, of course, we have to infuse that during the interpretation. But this is what we do every day as, as social science researchers. Because there is no rarefied, pure space that we can try to understand the ways that we interact in everyday reality. What, what we can do in terms of one of the things that ALSES can do in terms of trying to bring those reference back into and you be true to languages or be true to words which are referring to things which are not explicit, is it does work with um, something called the lemmatization dictionary in that you can go into the text and you can change some of the words which you know mean something else to mean what you know that it means rather so if, if you're saying um, if you say for example uh, hate suppose somebody somebody has said I hate you and it's in the throes of some passionate conversation it means actually I love you you can go in as the researcher because you know the context which Alcest will not read because again it's Free of meaning, and you can change that. So there are possibilities for small degrees of cleaning of the data and introducing um, sort of social contextual variable, or sort of social contextual information into the way else will see it. But that's a limited ability. I mean, we are dealing with imperfection in the world in which we live. Thank
1: okay, you. So we can give our, our a rubber hoping <laughs> Um Can we, uh, the gentleman here in front, and then. Uh,
0: Thank you. Uh, with the glasses in the, middle of the back. Thank you. Hi, my name is Sanny Vinecourt, and I wanted to firstly commend the effort because ever since my days as a uh, literature undergraduate and then a postgraduate here, I've instinctively felt the need for this kind of work. So thank you very much. Um, secondly, um, I wanted to ask if there are any plans to take, for example, a decade of of outsized analysis of literature, and then correlate it to a decade of analysis
6: of newspaper articles from the same years history books about the same years, songs from the same years and so on. I'm just curious about that.
5: Thank you. And, um, My question was to uh, Charles Lawrence, another LSE alumnus, following on from two questions before about our uh, preconceptions about perhaps our, our bias is saving what Alsace has told us and it's actually us reading in more impressive results than we're actually seeing. I think what would be a quite a good um, test would be, has Alsace ever got anything wrong? Have we put a novel in and said it just doesn't have this theme, which is an important theme of this novel, a- as accepted by people who have read it, because that would seem to be quite a good test to see if, it, counter-intuitively, if it, get it, if it gets it wrong well, more um, occasionally, be, uh, there's probably more re- uh, chances it gets it right as well. Thank sense. you.
1: Um, so, first uh, I might um, ask um, our historian to, to talk about, first of um I guess almost to speculate about this, we've got the idea of taking literature from a year or period and correlating other literature that isn't books with that? Um, I mean what, as what a historian, do, do you think of that?
4: I think it sounds really interesting. I, 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 think, I think I can quickly say that there aren't any plans that any of us know about or would have mentioned. But I think that, that that sounds like an extremely interesting project. I I don't know quite how you'd go about it. you probably, you definitely want to start. The problems you would face practically would be that you want to start. Long enough ago, that uh, everything was out of copyright, and then the difficulty you would then have is that the newspapers are not, uh, on the whole, digitized, or they're, they're, they're not uh, on, uh, they're, they're scanned rather than uh, you can't just plug them into access. But I think it's an extremely interesting uh, idea. I right? I could speculate about things you might find. Go on. Uh, (laughs) We'd like that. Let's have have a speculation. (laughs) Uh, Well, okay. Uh, In the uh, the 1930s, there were... What what I would like to put in from the 1930s, I would like to compare the different genres of novels that are being produced in the 1930s, of which there are there's a lot of detective fiction, there's a lot of sort of... Bloomsburyite fiction. There's an enormous amount of fiction produced by people. What people seem that what, one of the things that is that is riveting about the nineteen thirties is that there's no television, and people sort of forget that the forget the impact this has on the amount of leisure time we have, and so an enormous amount of educated of educated people wrote novels in the evenings because, because they had to fill the hours, and so there are squillions of these novels that no one's ever heard of. Uh, putting those through, comparing so com- basically comparing the work of essentially doctors uh, and accountants with the novels produced, the high art produced by Bloomsbury would be I think a particularly yeah. interesting thing to do in the 1990s and 30s and then comparing that obviously to the newspapers, I, don't know, I, I really don't know what you find, but I don't know
2: what you find, <laughs> I, don't you it. I, I don't, it? that's the I thing say, um the, the project that, that you described—the um, the, the sort of long-scale, sort of massive data block analysis—I um, point you towards a book called "Graphs, Maps, and Trees" by Franco Moretti. If you know that, um, he's begun to, to at least lay out the, um, the groundwork for how that type of work would be carried out, what it would look like, um, and he goes so far as to make some conjectures um, in terms of generic shifts. Um, was the late 19th century really the period of, of detective fiction Well, he'll plug in you know, every single novel that was published in that period that he can get his hands on um, and then crunch that data to try and, uh, see my lack of statistical knowledge here, I'm using really broad terms <laughs> and, um, and he'll try and pull out patterns um, based on, well, actually it turns out it, it was the period of, of the domestic drama or something, we remember the detective fiction published in that period um, but the sheer bulk of it, 80% of that some of it was, was, was you know, domestic drama or romance or something else, so there have been um, um, sort of quantitative attempts to, to break literary history down like that.
1: I'll, I'll leave him here and so I think it's a particularly fascinating area. One thing that very quickly occurs to me is that the great problem for people stu- who study literature it's very, very hard to, to read all the books. Um, and the idea of getting a computer to read the 30,000 novels that nobody reads uh, from the 1930s and telling you stuff about them that you wouldn't otherwise know about the sort of background radiation against which the great supernovas of literature occurred. Is, uh, seems to me a very exciting area indeed. But um, going back to your questions, uh, we were asked about getting things wrong. Um, I might rephrase that slightly um, because I, I, I guess access so is going to be perfect. But I was interested to ask you, John. Um, to the books that we've seen, we've put a few books up on screen and, and had them broken down by theme. And I was wondering what, in your experience, I mean, in your feeling, our sister's got most wrong thus far is there something, is there something in these books that really, really hasn't got it, it just completely sort of missed out or fudged or, or, or misunderstood it
2: hasn't been um, it hasn't been wrong in as much as it, it would struggle to be wrong in as much as uh, the, the patterns that fall out are based on the proportions of the text that deal with those things so it can't miss a major theme in a sense um, but in missing the minor themes or in missing the nuance um, it does make some, some poor readings, or at least it misses out on what it is we normally expect a critic to do. I mean, the focus of literary criticism is almost the opposite of, of the focus of the social sciences in this respect. And as much as literary criticism tends to be focused on close on reading on, on burrowing into the text uh, and, and analysing to, to a, you know, a great degree a much, much smaller body of text, there's a, um, an anecdote uh, told about um, Jack Derrida, who's obviously done the most extreme version of this and an interviewer went to visit him in his library in Paris and sat there amongst all his books, asked Derrida if he'd read all the books, and Derrida turned around and said, no, just three, but very carefully <laughs> and, um, and that, that sense that that's really what, what your ideal critic does, and they burrow in, one of the things I found um, the book I was going to do was Pride and Prejudice rather than Moby Dick, the Pride and Prejudice reading the problem with it was it was banal, it just wasn't is isn't interesting, there's nothing there that, that's that's insightful um, it just breaks the chunks up. This is,
1: this is our sense not audio. Yes, sorry. No, sorry.
2: <laughs> <laughs> an outside libel um um But when I looked at the literary criticism on, on the same subject, um, there was an essay written on on Austen's use of the word meditation, uh, because at the time uh, she'd apparently been reading Descartes, and the meditations on first philosophy was on her mind. Um, these themes crop up according to this criticism. And that's an entirely legitimate way to do literary criticism, is is to focus on this very small area and then look at how this has ramifications for the text, how it might influence the author. That type of nuance is exactly the type of thing Alcest would miss. So, whilst it doesn't give you a a wrong reading, it certainly gives you an inadequate reading and it can miss out on the very subtleties that probably make the difference between an enjoyable read and a a, a, a banal one.
1: Thank you. Can we take a a couple more questions, please? Uh, we've got a uh, gentleman in blue in the middle there, and um, on the far side of the purple in the top. Uh, yeah, this, this is a bit of a desperate comment on 60 years of AI. I mean, it's a word-counting right? program. It's not it counts words, it counts and it counts words. It's got nothing to do with robots. It doesn't read. This is complete nonsense. If you put a word-counting program and not only We have to be we, fair,
4: we would have, if we, we were announcing a new artificial intelligence, we probably wouldn't be
1: announcing it here. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have more we have no cameras yeah. in that sense. So we've got, we've got AI, as rubbish, and, I was, and the, um, the gentleman behind you has, has got a lot in blue as well.
5: Hi, um, I guess I, I'm still waiting for a bit of a, a justification for this from, from first principles, because it's a bit of an assumption that quantification is what literary studies should be going towards, or has always been going towards, and now they have the tool to do it. I mean, there needs to be some kind of recognition of um, the fact that the humanities don't exist just because they have poor tools, but because there's an idea that there are varieties of human experience which resist quantification and some idea of science and blah, blah, blah. And not only that, but also that actually find quantification itself kind of problematic precisely because of the ideas inbuilt that you can do something that's free of bias or impartial or whatever it is. I mean, you can disagree with that, but I think you need to acknowledge that it's there and that it's actually the majority opinion in, I would say, most humanities and social science departments.
1: Um, And I'll I'll take the third one as well. Do you have the microphone over there? Uh, Yeah, thanks.
5: Um, My question's a bit more technical, I guess. Uh, It was... um, A lot of the clusters that seem to come out in the examples that you've shown um, are pretty much based around content um, rather than style. I guess one exception might be the sort of... Direct speech in *Moby Dick*, um, and I wondered how, to what extent you think that's because uh, I think at the beginning he said Alcest sort of takes these word pairs and looks for how often they occur over the course of a long text rather than just in specific bits. And um, I guess it's a question for, for John really, um, if if you saw any sort of um, hints of how Alcest might be uh, look, uh, might pick up style elements better than it currently does, and also. Um, is anyone, I mean, is anyone trying to uh, build a more open source version of this so that the sort of actual mechanism by which it reads this becomes more accountable and possibly so that you can fiddle with it as well and uh, make it look for um, elements of style or other aspects of the text?
1: Thank you. Did we, did we roll up the first and third of those questions, which are different ways of talking about the same concern, I guess, which is um, how unimpressive is this? Um, or is it, um, is it is it better? Why why is this why is this more interesting than just counting words? And is there is there something? Is this the first step on the spectrum towards something something much more interesting? Um, I don't know if we you know about that, so I'll, I'll put that over to you first. Yeah,
2: I think I refer back to um, what I was what I was almost saying before, um, which is that uh, as a method of, of analyzing texts. This is already the way that it's done for large courses of of textual data in the social sciences. Um, And it it works perfectly well there with the types of texts that that social scientists want to put into it. The difference here isn't with the method of analysis the difference is uh, simply with the types of texts we put in. What that reminds us of, in a sense, is that the types of answers social scientists can give us rarely answer the types of questions that we have about, about novels does this represent the state of the art? Um, I don't know. Um, probably not. Um, but that being said, again, uh, the fact that, that very few people are trying to come up with software that, that uh, makes successful summaries of novels probably tells us more about our attitude to fiction. The business book summarizes um, that I briefly flashed up slides of. Um, they exist largely because business books aren't the types of things that people want to read. <coughs> Think of it as a kind of information theory model. Um in a business book you have a, a, a signal which the author is trying to convey and text is, is this messy, noisy section which is necessary to convey the information. Um, that as well as more or less the, the model that we teach students uh, where they're asked to lay out a series of bullet points be the plan for your essay expand that up into text and then comprehension consists in being able to write down a series of bullet points um, which, which describe the text and a well written text is well written to the extent that the first set of bullet points match up with with, with uh, the, the comprehended set and again the text is this messy um, noisy and again in the inform- information theoretical sense section in between that if you could you'd avoid um, literature is not at all like that um, it's, it's almost by definition that text that, that you want to read um, there's that famous mark twain line that um, the classics are the books that everyone wants to read and one wants to, to read um, but I think that when we read literature um, it's for the experience of reading when we read most factual documentary texts, it's for the information that we can extract from the end of it. This is a program which enables you to extract information. That's not really what we what we want um, artificial intelligence to do. That's not one of the things we want to farm off to the robots.
1: If I can um, bring Robert quickly on that, second question I guess, which is the idea of what the humanities, as opposed to the sciences, should should be doing or being aspiring towards, and where quantification. Into this as an I mean, as, a, as a hobbyist, what do you feel about that?
4: Uh, what I feel is that I, I we, We've we've hinted at it earlier. So we, I don't think any, any of us are making a claim that that, quanti- that this is about quantification. That the quantification is uh, qualitative in this case. Uh, we don't want to quantify uh, the text any meaning it can provide I don't think any of us think it can provide a meaning uh, so that's not the question we're asking from this information this is uh, the blocks of information we get from we've got from Alcest are interesting in other ways they're not interesting uh, for telling us whether something is good we, we, this is just not a problem that we can resolve using this information that's that, that's my take on these blocks. Uh, do we agree? Yeah. Yeah. That these
1: are. We, we have an agreement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I,
2: could, I don't yeah. be getting this wrong. <laughs> Just briefly. Say briefly as well um, yeah. Yeah. About the idea that um, you know this assumption. I think you mentioned it, that uh, there's an assumption of quantification is where literary studies is heading to, and, and following from that, that um, there are varieties of human experience which resist um, quantification. Um, in a sense, that, that goes against you know, several hundred years of. of intellectual progress, that we're going to set aside this one part and say, well, this is creativity, you know, we're not going to be able to understand that because it's essentially human, there's almost nothing uh, that, that you know, is going to be left over in a sense. Um, there's a transcendental uh, kind of leftover that the humanities incubate, um, and gradually we're seeing that encroached from all around cognitive scientists to figuring out what it is we experience when we, when we read metaphor. Um that the meaning of empathy is beginning to shift as the neuroscientists um, figure out how that works in the brain um, it would seem an odd thing if you had a, one discipline which said, you know, well we're just not going to ask those questions um, and in a sense the fact that literature has traditionally taken that position is why um, methodologically it stands so far from the rest of the university um, they're about the only place where those questions aren't invited the social scientists just wouldn't do say oh well they're criminals I don't know why that just happens Um, and in a sense that's what's happening when in in literature they say they're just good writers I don't know why Um,
1: thank you so we're going to examine literature with a bit more (laughs) rigour in the future and I think we've just got time for for two or three final questions Um, so halfway down that brings us to the introductory question which the introducing chairman asked the head of the school, and also to what our friend in the front row said in terms of comparing, say, newspaper and other clusters. How how about comparing the first five years of literary and scientific output of the LSE? with the last five years since 2005 of the LSE now as a whole, as a block and then trying to see whether perhaps progress in the first five years was a bit more intense than in the last (laughs) five years we have the LSE there I actually have got an option on that as a movie
4: and and the lady
1: next to you um, had a question as well Uh, this is a bit left field I was just
5: wondering whether it could be used to analyse musical compositions
1: that's a big those music competitions. And um, uh, we'll, we'll take two more because this is the last round of questions. The gentleman halfway down and the and the other gentleman. Oh, what both, both of you. Can we take the mic down to the um, gentleman on the, on the right? The other down. Uh, halfway up on the left.
0: My name is Kevin Wells. Um, it seems to me if, if this type of tool was ever to move in a more qualitative direction, um, it would be useful if it could analyse the type of word. Um, so, adjectives, nouns, similes, metaphors. Uh, just wonder what thoughts are on can it or could it um, do that sort of work?
1: Thank you. Um, uh, John Matthew,
4: Harvard Herb. Uh, this, I'm very interested actually in the possibilities of Alcest, and this is from the point of view of being a molecular phylogeneticist. And um, here's the point I mean, you're, there's clearly something in Alcest, right, which rules out things like the definite, indefinite article. Otherwise, it would probably have the cat, the cow going up a great deal more than a lot of other things, right? So if there is that inherent bias, then is there some way to downweight that? Rather than expunge it completely, for example, as opposed to Langdon did, Langdon did, Langdon did, blah, 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 right? Um, rather than remove it completely, is there some way to downweight it and yet have it very part I mean, as part of this overall analysis and yet look at patterns, the way they arise from that perspective in terms Thank of particular ratios?
1: Yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll whistle through these fairly quickly because uh, we're almost at almost the time. Um, I'll start at the end first because uh, get is most familiar with using this tool. What about. Um, well, the last couple of questions really: What about the future of downweighting elements that give, say, false positives? And this idea of trying to incorporate some kind of understanding of syntax into mm-hmm. these programs? Are, are we likely to see this happening? Is there a push towards this?
3: Well, in terms of the sort of also going back to where is this software going? There is a great attempt because it is doing something different than what the other coding methodologies we use do. There is a great attempt I think I could go as far as to say and we have the head of the methodology Institute here so he knows much more about this about um, agencies like the CIA trying to replicate this kind of packaging so that we can make it part of sort of this text mining industry that's go, that's developing very fast in terms of how software can look at text so there is uh, there are groups who are working very hard to do something quite similar and do it in an open, open, in a sort of open source, open platform way. As far as I'm aware at the moment though, the only way to change weightage within the text or to um, make it look at similes and other such things is by us going in and changing how the words look. Because remember, it's not understanding language, it's not, it's just seeing images and it's saying these images occur close to each other or in proximity over a volume. Of, so it's a one zero grid, if you want to say it. It does that sort of with the words both ways and says these are the words which are occurring together over time. So the only way you can, so the text when then, which you finally analyze after you've gone in and done what we call this process of cleaning, uh, looks very different than anything that, that, that it looked at in the beginning. So, for example, you might want to change all the heads of state's names to increase the weight of head of state because you want to see is there an impact of head of state. And if you have individual names, that's not going to be used because you know, one head of state's name mentioned once is going to fall out of the analysis. So the way to increase weight or decrease that, yes, it can be done, but it has to be done at the moment manually by going in, changing it so that it looks the same or different.
1: To Alex, as as you Thank you. and um, I'll I, I hazard a guess that none of us know very much about applying it to music, although I, I imagine it could. I imagine that would be a logical extension of this kind of tool, but I'm not sure we could discuss that now, um, unless anyone has a desperate disaster about what music would do. Um, in, <laughs> in that case, I'll, I'll very quickly um, invite um, John and Robert to just offer a really very quick closing thoughts uh, before, before we bid you farewell. Yeah, I guess uh,
2: my intention in, in Setting this project up with the methodology institute, and that, you know, as, as is probably clear, this isn't the result of a large empirical study. It's just a, a fishing expedition, as, as, um, as Robert called it. Um, was just to to see what would happen if social scientists looked at literary texts. What type of answer would they get? Would they get? Um, would they be able to produce any type of answer? Yes. What would it look like? It would look like these things? Um, is that the type of thing we want? Probably not. Um, could it be of assistance to literary criticism? Um, yes, it could be. As, as an ancillary tool to the process of criticism, to the process of value from criticism, it could. Um, why isn't it used more often? Um, why haven't literary studies departments, on the whole, embraced the types of uh, large-scale empirical work that you thought might produce these, these tantalizing patterns that we've talked about? Um, I spoke to of from things about this the other day, and he said, well, because it's, it's hard work. Um, and if you're a literature professor, and you don't have to do this stuff to keep the job, why bother? Um, so that's one answer. I suspect there might be another one, which is um, that once you start looking at, at these different slides, the Vinci Code yields just as interesting a result as um, all the twist. The, um, the data that, that you get by performing the types of analyses that social scientists do aren't qualitatively distinct. They're, they're, they're all as interesting as one another, and you can say interesting things about any type of text. Why is that a problem? Because literature departments operate on a a subset of literature. They don't
1: quickly indeed. Uh okay. Robert. <laughs> uh,
2: was this quite, what I took from it was the
4: quite visceral experience actually of being surprised at how well it read the book. That uh, obviously it read it in an incredibly limited way, and uh, a way from which you can only take a small number of things. But the fact that it read the book, from my subjective perspective, quite interestingly makes me think, look, there's a thing here. I don't know what the thing is, but the thing is real, uh, if flawed, and so it, what? It, and the fact that it's a thing means that I think that as a historian, you could plug lots of data through this and get some interesting results, uh, which is what I've said before. And it, fundamentally, I think that that's why history is better than literature, uh, uh, because because historians are, are instinctively aware of. The very limited nature of what you can say with any piece of evidence, but the fact, and that theirs is a flawed project, uh, but they're just trying to say a know more than they, they knew before, and uh, that's. And I think that that is a thing that this
1: can do. Thank you very much for uh, doing yourself, graduate out of the second level. <laughs> um, I, I'd like to uh, thank you all very much for coming. I think um, it's clear that we are uh, with a programme like this at the beginning of something, and that if it's not the most dazzling artificial intelligence in the world um, it is nevertheless something which can process books in an entirely new way um, and which when you start to imagine the millions upon millions of books, people like Google digitising, being fed into these things I would, for one would bet that the result that will come after that is more and more sophisticated and the techniques that apply to them will really surprise some people and out some staggering things so um, I'd like to, to thank our panel, uh, Dr. John Adams, Dr. Kavita Abraham and Dr. Robert Hudson and um, alert you no. to the fact that there is a drinks reception um, just up the stairs outside which you will very welcome to attend. Thank you very much for coming.